Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Uh, great to see you. Uh, we're getting ever closer to Easter, still in our sermon series called Alive. Uh, you may have noticed, though, that uh, our stage looks a little less green uh, than it was last week. Uh, we were worried about people, you know, compositing in underwater scenes behind me, that kind of thing, and a little easier on the eyes. So now you have an off-white uh, stage mostly, so you're welcome for that. Uh, but our series has not changed. We're still talking about what it means to be alive in Christ, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into that topic once again today. Uh, Lord God, I'm thankful for the Easter season. Thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to, uh, as a church, remember and rejoice in all that you've done uh, through the story of Easter, through the cross of Jesus. Um, I pray that this time right now would be, would be helpful and fruitful for us. I pray for those of us who are people of faith, that we would be reminded of the things that are true about us. Uh, what our life is really all about. Uh, I pray also, Lord, for those that are tuning in who are not people of faith, maybe interested, just kind of checking things out. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help them to understand who you are more clearly. Uh, Lord, that they would see their need for you. And uh, I pray especially, Lord, as we look at the, the difference between the nature of spiritual death and spiritual life, uh, Lord, that we would be uh, convicted and, uh, and encouraged, Lord, that, that you are the only hope we have in that. And so be with me now, please speak and speak through me in spite of my sin. And uh, Lord, I pray this would be uh, a time where we, where we grow in our uh, love for you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we started out this series on, uh, on life in Christ by thinking about death. Uh, we learned last week from Ephesians chapter 2 that human beings are not nearly as alive as we think we are. In fact, we learned that we are, we are spiritually dead without Jesus. And we also learned that um, one of the things that's difficult for us as human beings is difficult to really tell the difference between those who are spiritually dead and spiritually alive. Because as, as you look at us, uh, we're all sort of alive, physically speaking. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that um, when it comes even to physical life, uh, human beings have not always been fantastic at telling the difference between being alive and being dead. And I say this because uh, there was a time in history when uh, people had special coffins made. They were called safety coffins, and they were designed uh, because there was a fear that you might be buried alive. So I'm going to show you a couple pictures. This is from the 1800s. This first one was, I think, uh, 1868 or so, and uh, this one had a little mechanism with a pulley attached to a bell, and so if you woke up and you were in a coffin, you could pull that and ring the bell, and people would come running and, and dig you up. Uh, the next one uh, was developed a little bit later, a little more sophisticated. Uh, this one was complete with little telegraph machines. You can see the guy there typing out in Morse code, I am still alive, dig me up. So you might wonder why would they make these? Well, because in the 1800s, there were a series of cholera pandemics and a lot of people were dying all over Europe, all over Asia. A lot of people were very weak and uh, there were some instances where people were not correctly diagnosed, and, and so they were, they were buried. And this, these reports got out. People were very scared that this might happen to them, and so they started to build these coffins. Now, thankfully, that's not where we are today. Medical science has come to the point where we can tell pretty definitively if someone is actually physically dead or alive. But spiritually speaking, it's still very difficult to tell the difference between being dead and being alive. Uh, in fact, that's what we looked at last week. We looked at some of, the, some of the realities of what it means to be dead in our sins. And that's where we're going to start again this week. We're going to look at first the marks of spiritual death and then the marks of spiritual life. That'll take the bulk of our time. 
So here to begin, marks of spiritual death. Uh, we begin in, uh, I'm going to read just the verses from last week just to remind us of what Paul said about all human beings uh, before faith. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And you can see there that the marks of, of being dead spiritually are really devastating. Uh, the, verse 1 says that we are corrupt uh, morally. We're in our sin. Uh, verse 2 talks about us being captive to Satan, uh, following Satan, following the, the passions of our flesh. Verse 3 says that we are children of wrath, which, which really means we are condemned to hell because of our sin. So um, if you think about what it means to be dead spiritually, it's not a pretty sight. There's corruption, captivity, eternal destruction. In fact, uh, it's, very, it's very much like the effects of physical death on a human body. I'm not sure if you've been around a human body uh, after it's been dead for a while, but the reports that I have heard from anyone is that it is a, a horrendous sight. That decaying, rotting flesh is, is just disgusting, of course, but also there's the stench. I mean, the picture of, of real deadness, physically speaking, is, is completely horrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying. What we should have in our mind is the reality that that picture of us in our decayed, rotting flesh is the same, spiritually speaking, for those who are not alive spiritually. Moral decay, corruption, evil, selfish, ungodly thoughts, they run through the heads of those who are spiritually dead. The dark and twisted motivations of our hearts. I mean, there are times when we... Um, see examples of this many times in just human interaction, human society, where we see things that people do to each other or things that people do to us and, and we simply say things like, that was horrendous, that's heinous, it's evil, wicked. This is not just true of the worst people in society. This is true of every human being when we are dead spiritually, but before faith, on our own, we are, we are rotting morally and spiritually from the inside out. And the reason I bring all this up is not just to kind of disgust us, but because if we have that image in our minds when it comes to, to who human beings are um, apart from God, then the love of God becomes all the more astonishing. Because you could picture in a sense God walking through a graveyard with open graves, with just all of our, our bodies kind of rotting in our, in our deadness and in our sin. And he walks up to us and looks at our, our putrid mass of flesh and instead of being disgusted, God says, I love you. I, I want to help you. I want to show my grace and mercy to you. In fact, I want to make you alive. And then he would turn to Jesus and say, I want all of these dead people to be alive. I want you to, to die for them. And Jesus' response is, absolutely. Absolutely, I will do that. And in fact, he did. That's what we celebrate at Easter, that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the, the vile wretchedness of our sin, all the consequences of sin, death itself, this torturous, despicable death that he endured on the cross. But because of his moral and spiritual perfection, he conquered sin, conquered death, and was raised to new life. And the hope of the Christian message is that that new life is also our new life when we come to faith. 
That his work in us means that we, we have that same new life that we get to live out. Look at, um, look at Romans 6.4. It says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That word new, so important. So important because the promise of the gospel isn't that we would have more of our old lives. Because who wants that? Our old lives, we were alive physically, but inside we were totally dead, decrepit, decaying. We don't want more of that. What we need is new life. And in fact, that's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see in our passage. That when we have spiritual life, it means that we have a life that's completely new, reflecting uh, the wonder and the hope and the beauty of God. And so it's to those things that we're going to look this morning. We're going to look at the characteristics, the marks of genuine spiritual life that we have been given by God through Jesus. There's four of them, and we're going to begin with number one. So these are the marks of spiritual life. The first one is this. We have new power. We have new power. And we see this uh, right in verse four. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. You have that picture of us in our dead decrepitness, but God makes us alive. Even though we're we're so wretched, he loves us. And the power that we have is found in those, those first two words, but God. But God changes everything. We were dead to sin, but God made us alive in Christ. We were captive to Satan, but God freed us. We were children of wrath, but God shows us sort of mercy and grace and love. But God is the missing component for everyone's life. In fact, it's the only, it's the only power that can genuine, generate spiritual life in us. If you think about every living thing, every living being we need, we need energy, we need power. Our cells, our physical cells need to be continually replenished. We need oxygenated blood. We need nutrients. We need to stay alive. We need, we need power. What we see here, spiritually speaking, is that we needed power to get up out of the grave. We needed power to overcome the decay and the death that had gripped our hearts and our minds and God alone has that power. And what Paul is telling us here is that this power is available to us now through the Spirit of God. In fact, this power that raised us from the dead is also the power that is at work in us. Look at, um, look at Ephesians 1. This is the chapter previous, but he's speaking about this power of God. He says, What is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What he's saying there is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, raised him, lifted him up back up into the heavens, that's the power that is at work in our lives. That's the power that brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's, it's the same power that, that God breathed, that the spirit of God breathed into Adam and Eve who began by being physically alive and then he breathed his spirit. They're spiritually alive by God's power. It's the same power that's um, we're given as a, as a vision in Ezekiel, the dry bones. If you remember the, the valley of, of dry bones where it's a, it's a physical body, uh, completely, you know, completely deteriorated, just dry bones left and yet the power of God raises them to new life. God is saying, that's, that's the power that I have. I am the author of life, the source of life which means there's no one so dead that God cannot give them new life. 
In fact, it's, it's God's power alone that makes us alive together with Christ. That's the origin of our salvation. But here's the thing we need to remember. That new power doesn't stop at our salvation. It continues to work in us. It continues to, to work in our lives to grow us in godliness and maturity. And we need to remember this because <clears throat> even though we've experienced the power of God, any, any of us who've come to faith, the truth of the matter is that we often feel powerless to actually live for God, to actually follow Jesus in wherever he's leading us. There are many, many times when I've said or I've heard people say, look, the thing that I need to do in my life, it just, <clears throat> it's too difficult. I can't do it. I, I, can't, I can't break free from this sinful habit, whatever it is. I can't forgive the person who hurt me. It, it's just, the hurt is too deep. It, it still feels too raw. I can't, I can't do it. I can't escape the negative thoughts in my head. I can't break off from this relationship, even though I know that it's not right. I know that it's harmful, but it's, it's just too difficult. I can't trust Jesus in the midst of this trial. I, I just don't have the strength. And see, the truth of the matter is that if it was just us, if it was just us trying to do these things, then we might have a point. But what the Bible tells us very clearly is it's not just us. It's not just us because the whole origin of our life has been through the power of God. And that power continues with us, continues to empower us and help us and give us the strength that we need to do the things that God is calling us to. Uh, look here at Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 to 13, this is speaking about how we live out our life as, as Christians. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How can we do that? How can we work out our own salvation? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, it's not just us at work. It's not just us trying to do the things that we need to do. It, God is at work in us. We need to understand the power that we have right now is the same power that brought us from death to life. It's the power of God himself, which means that those, those things that we've struggled with, those sinful habits, the, the hard-heartedness we have towards others, the, the negative thoughts that are around in our head, the, the people in our lives that we know we need to separate from, all of those things, all of those things are, are, are possible if we remember what verse four said, but God made us alive. All of those things are too hard for us, but with God, they are possible. They are possible because if God can bring the dead to life, then he can soften our hearts, he can give us the strength we need, the conviction we need, the courage we need, the faith that we need to follow him wherever he's leading. The verse that says all things are possible with God is not talking about just the worldly desires of our hearts, that we want all of the, the material blessings that we can think of. What it's talking about is that we would have the power to follow him wherever he leads, that we would have endless possibilities of faithfulness and obedience. Because God's spirit is alive in us. That's the first thing we need to understand about this new life. We have a new power. Secondly, we also have a new heart. Look at verse five and six. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse six. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a bit of a confusing verse. 
Because it seems like Paul is saying that we have somehow been raised up. Like to the church in Ephesus, have they gone anywhere? No, they're, they're still in Ephesus reading this letter from Paul. For us, the church, is he saying that we have been moved somewhere? Well, not physically. But think of it like this. Imagine that um, there's a, a young guy uh, who's starting his career. He's a Vancouverite, lives in Vancouver, uh, but he has to move to Toronto for work, which is really the only reason you would move to Toronto, right? For work or some, you just have to do it. So everyone sends their condolences. He has to move to Toronto. Uh, he makes a life for himself there. He lives there 10 years. Anyone who meets him uh, thinks that he's a Torontonian and they ask him, you know, have you lived your life? And he always says the same thing. He says, he says I'm, I'm living in Toronto, but my heart is back in Vancouver. We know what that means. What it means is, I'm here physically. This is kind of where I'm living my life. But really, really, my identity is back in Vancouver. That's, that's the yearning of my heart. That, that's what I love. What he's saying is that even though physically he's in one place, in a sense, his true self is somewhere else. That's what Paul is talking about here. What he's saying is that when we come to faith, when we have new life in Christ, it's as if our hearts have been raised up into heaven. So now when we think of ourselves, we think of ourselves more as being a citizen of heaven rather than being a citizen of this world. Because a new heart is all about a new identity. It, it's, it's who we are. It's, it's how we live. And in fact, this new heart that we've been given um, was promised back in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 26, uh, God says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now notice there the heart of flesh that God gives us. That's not talking about a worldly heart. It's talking about a heart that's alive. Instead of being stone dead, it's, it's beating. It's beating by the power of God. And it's inclined towards the things of God. Because this new heart now um, is empowered to walk in the statutes of God, to obey the rules of God. What it's saying is, is this new heart means that, um, that our affections and our interests are now the things of God. We're, we're a new person, new power, new heart. You know, one of the best ways um, to kind of tell the difference between being spiritually alive or spiritually dead is in fact the heart. Uh, this is what Jesus always tests when he's, when he's talking with someone. Uh, if you remember, there's a time when Jesus is doing his ministry and there's a rich, rich guy who comes to him and says, you know, teacher, I, what, what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, we have to follow the commands of God. And the guy says, I've done it, everything. And Jesus says, well, there's one more thing. You need to sell everything you have. You need to get rid of it all. And this guy was really, really rich. And the text ends in a very um, sad way. It says, he goes away sorrowful for he had many possessions. Meaning, this, this guy seemed like he had life. I mean, if you looked at him, he was doing a lot of good things. He seemed a real heart for God, but when it came down to it, he was dead spiritually because he still saw himself as a citizen of the world. When it came down to it, he could not give up the thing that the people of the world value so much, which is stuff, money, possessions. He tested his heart, and sadly, that man failed. It was a different story for Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? We little Zacchaeus, he was someone also very rich, but the people in his town, uh, they, they would definitely have said that uh, he was not alive spiritually. Like if anyone was dead, it was Zacchaeus. In fact, when Jesus went to uh, eat with him, the people criticized Jesus and said, look, he's a sinner. I mean, he's, he's horrible. 
he's not a, he's not a good guy, Jesus. There's no life in him. And yet look, look what happens when Jesus comes to eat with him, Luke 19. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the evidence of Zacchaeus' new spiritual life, his salvation was a new heart with new values, new affections. Basically, he was saying, look, I don't care about money anymore. I'm a new person. I've got more important things in my life. That's, that's the mark of spiritual life. That's how you can tell that someone is spiritually alive because their heart, their heart is, is different. It's changed. It's new. When we are alive spiritually, we have a heart that wants to follow Jesus and put him above everything else in the world. So let me ask you this question. Does your life give evidence that you've been lifted up with Jesus into the heavenly places? Or does it still seem like you're a citizen of the world? Like if you think about the things that you're prioritizing, the things that you're living for, if someone were just to look, even from the outside looking in, would they see things that you're not willing to give up? where they see things of this world that you're grabbing onto very, very tightly. See, all of these kinds of things are ways that we can test our heart and we can, we can see if, in fact, there's a spiritual life within us because if there is, we will never be at peace with that. There'll always be a wrestle, always be a, a conviction of the spirit to put Christ first, to see ourselves as being lifted up with him in the heavenly places, living here in this, in this world for now, but really that's our home. That's where we're going and that's how we're gonna live. So, new power, new heart. Thirdly, third mark of spiritual life is a new hope. Verse seven says it this way. So that in the coming ages, he, that is God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So notice the shift here. Remember back in verse three, it said that we were children of wrath. Uh, that, that meant that God was angry with us because of our sin. He was justly angry with us. But now we see that we are gonna receive kindness from God. How did that change? Well, it changed because of the Easter story. It changed because on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God. He, he propitiated himself, took on all of the wrath of God, opened the door for us to be blessed by God for God to show favor and kindness towards us. Let's look at the phrase again, because the wording is interesting. He says that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. I love that, immeasurable riches and kindness, kindness from God. Let's think about this for a moment. If you had to pick one person on the planet to be kind towards you, who would it be? Just take God out of the picture for a moment. One other human being on the planet, who would it be? Maybe you would pick someone in your life that isn't kind towards you. And you just, I really love them to be kind. That could be. But I think if we were thinking logically about this, we would probably pick the person in the world who has the most to give us. Like if they're going to be kind and generous, we want the person who has the most to give. So right now it would be a toss up between Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. One of those two would be able to show us the most kindness. So let's, let's pick Jeff Bezos for a moment. He's leaving Amazon. Um, I saw a real hard-hitting news story about his worth. They said he was worth $193 billion. And just to help quantify for us like what that would mean, 
Uh, I'm gonna, gonna, this is from TheVerge.com. The news story was called, Some Things That Jeff Bezos Can Do With His $193 Billion. And so here are some of the things he could do. He could buy 64,400 Bugattis uh, with his money. They're $3 million each. This top of the line. He could just drive one every day for the rest of his life. Uh, he could build 19 James Webb Space Telescopes. This is the, the new model from the Hubble. It's worth about $10 billion each. You get 19 of them, look into every part of space. He could buy 9.6 billion doses of the Pfizer vaccine. So it might help our provincial government just to get things going. Um, so he could do any of those things, so many things. That's, that's how much money he has. But imagine, imagine this. Imagine if instead of doing any of those things, Jeff Bezos wrote you a letter. He wrote you a letter and said, dear so-and-so, dear Tim, Tim, I have, I have made a blood oath as Jeff Bezos that I am going to spend the rest of my life pouring out all of my riches, all of my wealth on you. That's what I'm going to do with it. Imagine if you got that letter. I mean, there would be some things that would change. Whatever financial worries or concerns you have right at this moment, whatever things need to be fixed in your car, your home, do you have to worry about it at all? You don't have to worry about retirement. You don't have to worry about paying for university for your kids. There's none of those worries anymore. You have every comfort imaginable. You have the ability to give generously to others. I mean, that, that would be an amazing letter to receive because the riches at his disposal are amazing. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because as, as a point of comparison, what we need to understand is that those riches are nothing compared to the riches of God. In our text, it literally says that God's riches are immeasurable. I mean, Jeff Bezos would eventually run out of money and he wouldn't have any more to give. That's never going to be the case with God. In fact, it says in our text that it's going to take ages, in the coming ages, meaning for eternity. That's how long it will take for God to, to spend all that he has. It will just keep going and going and going. The other reason it's better is that God's riches aren't just material. He doesn't just have stuff to give. I mean, Jeff Bezos, he may also be a nice guy. I don't know. He may be, there may be some relational blessings there that could come. But with God, I mean, his blessings are the things that our soul really needs. I mean, to be loved, to be valued, to be satisfied in our, in our soul. These are the things that God brings. These are the true riches that he has and that he wants to, to show us for years and years and years. And lastly, the thing about the riches of God is that they will actually draw us nearer to him. If you think about all the other stuff, the, the blessings that we might receive from any other source, I mean, the, the challenge there is that whatever good thing, it, it's always a temptation to be attached to that thing rather than to God. Even the things that God gives us here on this earth is sometimes a struggle. We, we, we love the gift rather than the giver. But the true gifts of God, the, the wonderful thing about it is that they always draw us nearer to him. Because he is the greatest gift. He is the true source of, of joy and satisfaction and peace. And so a really good gift will draw us near to him. It won't compete with him. It reminds me of, uh, of my favorite song. Back uh, when I was in a uh, college group at Willingdon Church. It was called College and Career on Wednesday nights. Little known fact, I was the drummer of the worship team. Second little known fact, Mark Siemens was the leader of the worship team. So we were there rocking it out together. And the song that I always loved, I would say, Mark, if you put it on the, on the playlist, was this song called Father of Lights, and it comes from this verse, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What it's saying there is that the, the, the truly good gifts, the perfect gifts are from God himself. And they're good because they're going to lead us closer to him, that he doesn't change, that his goodness is perfect and true and his gifts are perfect and true. Here's the question for you today. What, what gives you hope right now? What lifts your spirits? What helps you to get through difficult days? I think if any one of us were to receive that letter from Jeff Bezos, we, we would be encouraged that day. We would be lifted up that day. We, 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 would, we would be helped. We'd be hopeful. But not to burst your bubble, I, I really don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I can be pretty sure that Jeff Bezos is not going to write a letter like that to anyone. But do you realize that we actually have a letter from God that's written to us, written to the Ephesian church and to us, and he literally says that he is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He has promised that to us. The only issue is whether we believe him or not. Do we actually believe that is true? That that is his inclination towards us. And in fact, that is what he is doing. Do you believe that even in the midst of the difficulties of life, and there may be many, that God is still bringing good into our lives? And that his intention, his commitment, is to bring good gifts into our lives to draw us nearer to himself that may involve turning away from hard things, it will definitely involve some, some tests of faith, like the rich man who had all that money and had to, had to give it up, but it will always result in greater blessing. And it will culminate in heaven where the floodgates will open and we will be so blessed to be in his presence. We do have a new hope with this life in Christ because it's rooted in the kindness and generosity of God. That's the third mark of life that we be a hope-filled people, confident that God will bless us. Fourthly, fourth mark of life, though, is this, that we have a new purpose. A new purpose. A purpose is actually more important to human beings than we sometimes realize. Purpose is essential in terms of how we live our lives. I was reminded of this uh, this week I was reading an article about the impacts of COVID on uh, this hotel in New York City. This is like a five-star hotel that I had never heard of before um, called the Pierre. Here's a picture of it. This landmark hotel, the Pierre. Their motto is flawless five-star service. They were kind of doing some little, um, little reports on the different employees. Here's one of them. Gilberto Medina is his name. He's the laundry room foreman. He's worked there since 1981. Uh, this apparently is a fantastic place to work. The people who come there, they stay for decades and decades. And sadly, uh, most of them have been laid off. So prior to the pandemic, the Pierre employed 435 people. Since this time last year, 350 have been laid off. It's just the tourism sector has been hit so, so hard. And many of them are really struggling financially, right? Struggling to try to, to make ends meet. Uh, many of them are emptying out their savings, their retirement savings. But the interesting thing I noticed in the article was that the biggest challenges that many of them are facing are not financial. Uh, take a look at this paragraph. It says, many laid-off hotel workers lost their health insurance at the end of 2020 and now have had to pay for it themselves. The Hotel Trades Council provides free legal services and some members have called asking for help filing for bankruptcy. But... 
But Sergio Dorval, the bartender, has noticed that the greatest source of stress among most of his coworkers seems to be existential. They're talking about their purpose in life. Like, I feel useless, he said. They're not comfortable just getting unemployment and staying home. This reminds us of something that, that maybe should be evident to us, which is this. It's impossible for human beings to be truly alive without having a genuine and compelling purpose. We need goals. We, we need good things to do, good things to occupy our mind and our heart, good things to accomplish. And, and what I want us to see in this text, in the last few verses, is that purpose is integral to the life that God has called us to, the life that he's given us. Look at verses 8 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the, the dynamic quality of this new life that God has given us. It's by his power and his work that we actually have the life. We were dead in our sin, no hope, uh, no power. God gave us everything through the cross. Jesus died for our sins. We are raised to new life. We, we have hope. We have faith. It's all God's doing. But then once we are alive, there's work for us to do. You see that in verse 10. There's, there's work that God has prepared beforehand. That we would, we would walk in that work. That we would do that work. This actually should not surprise us. Because one of the big differences between a dead body and a live body is that a live body does stuff. It's the same spiritually. That the difference between those who are dead spiritually, those who are alive spiritually, if we're alive spiritually, we're going to do things. We're going to do spiritual things, good things, things that, that honor the Lord, things that help others. And the amazing thing about the Christian walk is that we do these things in the power of God. I mean, when you read through the New Testament, you see this dynamic of there's things for us to do, and yet it's God who strengthens us, God who gives us the power, the energy that we need to be able to do the things that he's planned for us to do. Look at 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. You see this, this dynamic at work here. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see what it's saying there? That there is work for you to do. You've been given gifts to use for, for good purposes, for the glory of God. But it comes through the strength that God supplies. A lot of us. A lot of human beings spend a lot of time trying to figure out our purpose in life. What we should note here is that as people of God, that purpose is not something we have to figure out or search for. It's been given to us. Very clearly, our purpose is to glorify God with the good things that we do. And by good, it means good for people's eternal good, for their spiritual life. It means good in the sense that we have in mind that there is a heaven, there is a hell, and that there are people who are lost and dead in their sin and that we have the message of hope and that we can go out into our lives and we can do good, not in our own strength because we can't change hearts. We can't bring people to life, but God can. And so we do it by his power. We do it by his strength. It's important we see this because sometimes in the Christian church, there's this idea that, look, man, it's God who does all of this, so you know, we can just, we can sit back. 
We can let go. We can let God. We don't have to, we don't have to worry too much about anything, of course. And so we don't have to work too hard because it's God who does it. We definitely don't need to worry, but we should be at work. If you look at how, how Paul describes his life, he talks about toiling. He talks about striving. He talks about fighting hard, fighting the good fight, running the race. The picture of Paul is, is a man who sweats, a man who's, who's, who's expending all of the life that God has given him for the glory of God. That, that should mark us, that we live lives that are intentional, that we live lives that are sold out for Jesus in, in a way that loves the people around us. That's the mark of life, that we have a purpose and that we're living it out. I want to leave you with a picture I came across in my reading. Um, it's, it's a contrast between two uh, creatures in the ocean, okay? So imagine the world is the sea. We're kind of floating around on it. Well, there's a big difference between a jellyfish and a dolphin. Both, in a sense, are alive. I mean, a jellyfish can thrive, but it's a very different kind of life. Jellyfish, they just float. There's no intentionality. There's no purpose. They just float around. I think they sting things and they eat them somehow. I'm not sure how that works, but they're, they're alive. They're thriving, but it's not, it's not the same as a dolphin. Dolphins are intentional. Dolphins can swim against the current. Dolphins have a sense of autonomy. That, that's a better picture of how we should live, especially since in the, in the world, there's a lot of currents that are pushing us one way or the other, and there are some people who claim to be alive in Christ, and yet they're just floating. They're just kind of being tossed to and fro. That, that should never be true of us as Christians. What should mark us is an intentionality. That, that we are active, that we are purposeful, that we are leaning into the, the power and the life and the new heart that God has given us for the purpose of reaching more people with the gospel, for the purpose of honoring our Savior. So I don't know, for everyone who's tuning in, everyone who's watching, I don't know for us, for you, what it may be that God is calling you to, but what I hope that you see very clearly in this text is that life is indeed a gift by the power of God, but it is not something that we are to waste. It's not something that's just for us. In fact, the more that we live it out, the more intentional we are, the more that we will enjoy it because we will grow closer and closer to him. And we will have the joy, hopefully, of seeing more and more people plugged into the power of God, coming to faith. That's my hope this Easter season in spite of the, the challenges of difficulties, that the message of the gospel would go forth through us as a church and that we would be looking for opportunities to be intentional, to take risks, and to delve deeply into what it means to truly be people who are alive spiritually, connected to the power of God, doing difficult things so that he would be honored and so that we'd be more satisfied in him. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to remember what it means to be alive. And God, I pray for everyone tuning in, everyone watching, for those who are people of God, who, who are part of the church. God, I pray that, that you would help us to see clearly what it means to be truly alive. Lord, that, that, that we would, there would be an, an activeness in our life. There would be a boldness in our life because we recognize that we are connected to a power that cannot fail. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you died so that I might enjoy the kindness and blessing of God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that I would, I would look out into the world around me and that I would see opportunities to trust you more, to turn from, from things that are hindering me and to reach out and to show love to people around me. I pray, Lord, for those that are tuning in 
who don't have faith, I pray that you would be working in their heart even now to bring them to life. We know it's by your power. We know it's solely by, by the Spirit of God working in individuals that we come to new life. I pray many would experience that right now. I pray for the season that many would come to faith. And I pray that you would be glorified through our lives as we live them for you, as we strive and we work and we toil, not to earn any blessing, but because we've already been given everything in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.